This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Jay. This is Paul. And this is Richard. Welcome to the TriTac Podcast. Yay! The 200th TriTac Podcast. 200! Wow. And we are excited about that, so excited that we totally didn't bother to tell you that we're also in our fourth year. Yay! Did not want to take any excitement away from the fact that this is our 200th podcast. Now, of course, we've done a lot of creative uh, numbering with our podcasts over time, so pay no attention to that. This is our official 200th episode, and for that special episode, we have Richard Taholka, the man behind the magic, here on our podcast to tell us the future of TriTac, I guess. He says he has much, much, much to tell us. Welcome again, Richard. When was the last time you were on, Richard? Um, I think there were dinosaurs. Oh, okay. Also here, there is one more person. And who might that be? This is Melody. Hey, Melody. Hey, Hi, Melody. For those of you who have come late to the game, Melody is Richard's spouse. Paramore and everything else that is all good. Because we love Melody. Oh, yeah. Yep. Melody gets Richard out in the morning. No, she doesn't. She she gets him out in the afternoon. Remember, he works nights. Yeah. <laughs> She's also doing a lot of the design work on the new TriTech system. Yeah, I'm the, the one who starts the coffee. Tri-tech. Yes, Melody is one of the lead designers for TriTech. She is the one person that if I actually really have to have an answer for something, I go to her. Because <laughs> she will get it out of it. We run our fingers lovingly over the forehead prints of the playtest articles. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we do have a topic for our TriTech 200th episode. But before that happens. Topic? Who ever heard of such a thing? Yes, indeed. It's so, so, so rarefied that we ever get back to it. But Richard, tell us, what is it that is in looming distantly and rumbling toward us like a herd of magnificent cattle? What is the awesome that you're bringing to us in the near, near future? Well, we've got a couple of things. Within hopefully two weeks, we're releasing a new set of miniatures, which is called... Trailer Trash Fairies. So we have Trailer Trash Fairies on the way. The interchangeable wings, and you can actually retailer them to be non-trailer trash fairies. What do you mean by tailor, Richard? The wings can be eliminated, and then you end up with Bob and Edna, and a six-pack of beer and a chicken leg. Well, are, are these metal miniatures, or are we doing a combination of cloth? and? No, they are miniatures. They are full miniatures. As in metal miniatures. As in metal miniatures, yes. Okay, thank you. All right. We will also be hopefully deciding what the next set of miniatures will be. Okay. Right now the vote is at Slargs and Mounties. There's a sitcom there. I would definitely like to see some Slargs. Do these miniatures come with any kind of a backstory that would be appropriate for like Weird Zone or Bureau 13? Not yet. Could that possibly be added to the website? Uh, they will be on the website. No, I mean a backstory. 
a backstory. Yes, for the miniatures. I think we could cook something up. Well, I would think that would be great. Don't you think so, Blix? I do. I do. I do. What else you got for us, Richard? I want to apologize to anybody who listens to the podcast because uh, we know that uh, Nick Pilata died last spring, and it, it really, really shook me. Nick was a very good friend of mine. Kind of went into writer's block, and I finally come out of it again. Took a while to kind of get over this. I'm also sitting with the last Bureau 13 novel he did, which is about half finished. And he left several outlines, which right now are moderately incomprehensible. We have to go back over it and decide what we're going to do with it. It's called Morningstar. It's sort of heartbreaking to read because I think he had a lot of ideas he was going to kick into it, and then he died. We've contracted with his wife on the SP books. Right now, we're set until 2025 with no issues whatsoever with the continuing publication of any of the stuff that Nick did. Great. So that took a few months to get through in the summer. You know, basically legal material. Richard Sinisak handled all of it and did a wonderful job. Is she handling the uh, Bureau 13 promos that he has up on YouTube? Those are just going to sit on YouTube for now. And we have to make some decisions on that. We're going to be talking to Melissa about putting out special editions of all four of the Bureau 13 books. And possibly the fifth one, which sort of is Bureau 13, and then this last one, but I don't know yet who's going to finish the book. Well, I'm sure that if you put a call out to the fanish community, you'll find a writer. Yeah, I hope so. The manuscript is quite something interesting to read. What we might end up doing is posting the first 25 or 30 pages of it. There's a good 60 to 100 pages of it in existence right now. Well, that's a lot more than they had for Variable Star. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I thought of that, and I, I kind of scratched my head and wondered who would be able to finish this. Who has the panache that Nick Pilata did? The, the comedic chops. Also, his research. I mean, he really did research a lot of his work. I mean, when he did his, uh, was it the satellite live news ones? He actually spent time with a, a TV news crew to figure out to find out how they actually operated. Well, I don't think anybody's going to do that. I don't think anyone's going to find a bureau team to hang around with. Not that they'd admit on a podcast, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> After Portals 4 is finished, we have actually an outline for Portals 5. But before I get that done, I want to get Bureau 13 Brass and Steam done. Probably on, on the heels of that, get Easy Space out finally. Then hopefully by next year we'll be back on schedule again. It took a good six months for me to get over his death. Do you want to give the elevator pitch for what Easy Space is for our listeners? Easy Space is sort of like an FTL light. Something a little different. It's sort of space the way it should have been. If we had gone through with the, the Chelsea Bonestell designs, the pointy ships, Admiral, and later on, President Heinlein, that kind of thing. Oh. <laughs> I was about to say, as God and Heinlein intended. Oh, absolutely. Yep, it's nothing like what we have now. It's, it's something much simpler. Have you seen what SpaceX is up to? They're actually doing that. Tail-sitting spaceships. Oh my God, I about died. About with died. a lot of 50s science modified by... A little bit of alien tech, and then things that, like, you know, half a ton computers. Oh, so you're talking diesel punk error technology then. So you're going to be flying with mechanical computers and using slipsticks to do your astrogation with. Yay, more retro future. We'll see how it develops. There's yeah. about 50 pages of it out of 95 right now, and it's, it looks pretty good. Little bits and pieces of it together. I need to be modified, but uh, I'm actually quite excited about Portals 5. And mm -hmm. right now we're tentatively scheduling it to be called the Earth Tremelor War. Oh, you know, Richard, there's been questions on the forum about when is Portals 4 coming out? I managed to get three pages done yesterday. And if I can get at least a page a day, probably within about 30 days. You heard it here, folks. 30 days, and when we say 30 days, it's... It takes another week every time somebody quotes me. Rich won't even use himself as a source here. Don't worry, Richard. This doesn't drop for at least three weeks. 
That's good, because it may be close by that time. Yeah, there you go. A lot of materials going in. The next book is absolutely wonderful, because it's, again, it's some bits, it's, it's all sorts of things that you never thought about with the Tamalorn. And then and it's a piece of it that starts in book four. It's called Strange Days. And because of the Coptics, it's maybe another two dozen human and non-human races that simply march into the uh, IDA uh, Hatsumi base and say, hi, we're here to help. And some of the things that walk in are completely flooring IDET. And Dan the Tremelwin are showing up on Earth a lot now. Apparently, there's nearly a hundred of them in some place called Huron, South Dakota. And they're doing something other than staying at the Motel 6. Yes, we're here. We're here to do something good. So you're over there. Give me some wood. Something very, very important. We'll cover that more in, when the next book comes out, hopefully about mid-year next year. You mean the next Portals book? Yes. I can see t- uh, Tim Allen getting blasted at the local bar. Oh, this is good tequila. I really can feel ya. Wow. At least they're not being blasted by the local militia. Yeah. <laughs> hey, check out my Tremelin skin rug. If some cop decided to pull a gun on Tremelin, it'd be the last thing he ever did in his life. Tremelin are so advanced that when the cop pulls the gun, he finds out it's turned into a Twinkie. Yeah. Well, he's not going to do anything to make make the poor cop hurt himself. I mean, for heaven's sakes, it's, he's a poor Earth cop. I mean, you know. He has a nice psychedelic dream, and when he wakes up, he's a pacifist and doesn't want to study war no more. No, well, like we said, you know, the Tremelin aren't pacifists because of their general nature. They're pacifists because they went to war and fought each other, and they realized it was a bad thing to do. Right. Now, in the origin story, it specifically says that they're evolved more towards cooperation and less towards violence. It specifically says that they are more of a pacifistic people. Their society evolved toward more cooperation. Not necessarily them. They're like Vulcans. Uh, you know, Vulcans are only that like, like that step away from ripping your head off and stuffing and stuffing into the trash into the trash compactor. Uh, okay, <laughs> that is not what I read there, John. And I agree with Hugh J. Yeah. All right. Anyway, we're also going to add some more and hopefully and portals four and five about the, what what you started with the Commonwealth, but it's all going to happen probably around twenty forty or so. We go into twenty forty, Richard. 2040, 2050, somewhere right around there. That's when you're going to publish it? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's where the, the story is going to kind of start taking place. Richard means FD plus 30 to FD plus 40. Fringe Discovery plus 30 to Fringe Discovery plus 40 because that's how we actually record time in the new book. Right, Richard? We'll work it out. <laughs> Considered maybe writing some books that are one platform, one node specific. Unless Richard and Melody are planning on having a little uh, papoose, we're going to have to start planning some chain of inheritance then. I think our limitation is a 8-pound dachshund and 220-pound cat. Oh, yeah. Right now, I'm just waiting for that whole transhumanism uh, singularity thing to show up so I can upload myself to a computer. Not have my back hurt anymore. And you, you can't forget... <laughs> that uh, in February, I turned 60. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'm not Jimmy Doohan. Well, good, because he's dead, Richard. Yeah, that would... That yeah. that would be sort of creepy, yeah. Be kind of problematic on putting out those books, yeah. Right. Er, publish. Writing zombie. So what else you got for us, Richard? Like I said, we're debating on what the next pair of miniatures are for the miniatures pack. An incursion mounty and a slarg were a good possibility. But the slar, we were actually going to do the Mountie and his wolf with the modifications of adding in to turn the wolf into a slarg. What, what swappable heads? Uh, nope. With the, the way we did the, uh, the fairies, with the interchangeable wings, basically, or, or no wings at all. And then mm. we could do the same thing with a slarg with very slight modification. But I, I don't know yet. I haven't, I haven't made any decisions at all. These are man-sized slargs, right? Depending on what, these will be like 20, uh, 27s, 28s. I don't, I don't understand that, Richard. Oh, 28 millimeter. Okay. Used to be everything was 25, and now it's down up to about 27 and 28. Okay. And uh, we haven't decided yet where we're going next year. Other than we'll be at Ancon, we'll be at Marcon, 
Uh, we'll be at Confusion, and we'll be at the World Science Fiction Convention in Detroit. Neat. And when is Worldcon in Detroit? Uh, July, around the 27th, right around the end of July. I'm actually working with the Dorsi there. I'm doing a huge display of uh, science fiction on stamps from across the world. Oh. Uh, one of the only people in the country who does that kind of thing. Commemoration of people like Heinlein and uh, James Tiptree and quite a few others. Anne McCaffrey's got a stamp now, but none of it's U.S. It's all foreign. Nobody in the U.S. Does, thinks that science fiction writers are worth yep. doing commemoratives for. We're waiting for the Leo Frankhaus commemorative from Poland. And beyond that, for the end of next year, we're finally going to get, we're going to take a shot at trying to get Elfwinds finished. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah. Which is the first fantasy and magical game we were going to do. Other than, you know, the references out of the hardwired hinterland. And Bureau 13. And out of Bureau 13. We're having very light discussions with a group of people up here about doing a Kickstarter and doing something very special, either with FTL or with Bureau 13, but I, I just don't know yet. We have to look at what time and everything else. So usually I work from 7 in the evening until 4 in the morning, and we were purchased by Brazilians. It's been, to say the least, exciting. How many Brazilians did they spend on your workplace? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think they're going to build a slum in the parking lot next. So we actually know people down in Brazil. One guy who was playing FTL for years, now he's in the Brazilian Defense Department, uh, Pablo. They sent me a couple of books that were dedicated to us, though I still have no clue in Portuguese what they dedicated to us. <laughs> yeah, oh my. Uh, yeah, that, that could be something that could really surprise you later on, or in posterity. <laughs> oh, it might. We've also got a copy of one of Nick's books in Russian. Right. It was the Omnibus edition, the first three, with a very sexy cover. Uh, you can call it that. I would call it the one of the best hodgepodges I've ever seen of things that don't relate to Bureau 13. Well, as I recall, it had two very attractive agents and, what, and a very big gun. I think that was a different one because this one had a guy on it that looked almost medieval. So one of these days we'll, pull, we'll post the copy on the website just to show what it looked like. I saw the one way back when. Nick sent the cover around and said, this is what the cover of the Russian edition is. And when I went to Russia, I was kind of hoping I could find a bookstore and look for it. At that point, of course, it would probably be so out of print. You never know in Russia. You know, you walk in there and, you know, books that were published 20 years ago are right there as bestsellers. Yep. The, the American writers are still waiting for the royalties. Hey, <laughs> I've got to be happy. I always wish to make a million. I made 1,400,000 rubles off the original book, which at the time was worth $103. Woohoo! Well, the rubles are worth a lot more now. I wish I would have waited. Yeah. Should have held on to those rubles for a while. Except those bills with Lennon on them just don't work anymore. Is that right? Dog comrade. <laughs> so, anything else for us, Richard? Um, that's the, kind of the beginning. Uh, Melody finished the backgrounds for the uh, trailer trash fairies. And you want to describe them? Very pink, pink flamingos, a airstream covered with Christmas lights, a Christmas tree in the middle of the summer. Yeah, that sounds trailer trash, yeah. What would they have up on blocks in the front yard? That I gotta know. A unicorn? And I have a request to John, considering how as many steampunk pictures as you've got, John, I could use a lot of those for the main book. Ah, okay. This as long as you've got the rights to them. Well, the trouble is I probably don't have the rights to them. If you're talking the ones I've taken myself, well, I'll gladly donate any I've taken myself. The ones you've taken of yourself, some of them are absolutely phenomenally great. Ah. Or like my old cover picture for Facebook? I should bring that one back. It was a uh, Polaroid camera, but mounted on a, um old old uh, uh, f camera frame, one of the old style fr uh, frames, and she would literally take pictures that way. So I got black and white of that. I should probably dig that, dig that one out. You can, yeah. I'll donate those. No problem. We 
got uh, right. Bill Wardrop, who was actually done a few with his wife, are going to be using for, for the uh, going to be doing that for mm-hmm. the book. And those they look great. And we've got a number of people up here who are, are heavily into steampunk, considering we have Steamcon up here, who are actually donating stuff into TriTac for it. So I think we're going to be it's going to look really good with as many live pictures as we're going to have. You may want to contact Gary and Susan Stahl. They're heavily into the uh, costumery. I bet they have some good picks for you, too. All right, of course, Gary and Stu Stahl. I know Gary very well. Apparently, the steampunk costuming has eaten Susan's brain. She's putting a lot of effort into this. Okay. Oh, I've got one more for you. This is for the future, not for this year, probably not for next year. But we've gotten an amazing response out of Cloisters, and I, I'm totally floored with the amount of good response we got out of it. Apparently people like the scenarios, and they like the whole concept. Now with the Moral Project coming back out, it's going to mm. be interesting to see if they both really sell well. Yes. Yeah. Well, Cloisters is one of those products we haven't had a review on the show yet. As you get closer to that, that release date for Moral Project, we should definitely put one out about the cloisters so are you actually playing any games right now richard the only thing close i've got to play is i get a half an hour to three quarters of an hour of minecraft in the morning i feel you well i thought that uh, melody was running something for you no actually we, we were doing a little computer games and really we can't get anybody together here because right now i don't know 72 hours in advance what kind of schedule i've got I can't schedule anything. We, we no longer have schedules at work. They tell us, come in, and this is when you work. Is there any more news for us, Richard? People were complaining about the PDFs being broken up into multiple parts, and the computer abilities and the PDFing abilities have improved to the point that I am looking at going back and uh, maybe... Would the word be remastering them? Because uh, you can strip the stuff out of them, even the ones that are rasterized. It'll mean OCRing them and starting over. But it might be worth it. Uh, I pulled a couple of them apart and I'm trying it out to see where it goes. So you're, you're no longer using any of Richard's original files? Oh, you mean the original files like the pay stock? No, I'm talking about the uh, Aldous PageMaker files that he was using. This is paste up now. Okay. Oh. So it wouldn't be a matter of uh, taking the files, doing OCR, cleaning up the OCR, cleaning up the spelling, adding an index, that sort of thing. Sure. Oh, my God, that sounds tedious. I guess I can finally delete those files that you asked me to hold on to for you then, Richard. Bruce, hang on to them. Just <laughs> because you never know. Okay, we're due how, for a commentary pass in about three weeks. How big can they be? Throw them on a thumb drive and put them in your sock drawer. So if you guys like, I can make a Dropbox and drop stuff in it as if I get anything workable out of what I'm trying to do, and that way everyone can check it over. That would be great. I've gotten comments from some folks who actually have bought the the, the PDFs uh, on disc, and are you are you going to be able to sell them actually just PDFs and no CDs, at all? or are we gonna, basically like they do off of like um, Drive Through RPG or something like that, or are we going to still have CDs or? Well, I actually uh, Dropbox for someone, and then Richard refunded their money, so I don't know where that's going. The Dropbox test was something to a teacher in Canada. And he wanted a copy of Monster Squatch for the kids. We actually were able to successfully Dropbox it to him. And then considering the length of time it took to do this and get it right, that uh, he got it and basically, you know, I refunded him as nine ninety five. dollars uh, However, the problem right now is the U.S. Postal Service is now charging so much to send even a CD to Canada, it's almost not worth shipping. It's uh, right now, I could say somewhere between 8 and $10 to ship to Canada. Digital download's the way to go, Richard. I've been checking into trying to find a source of ultra-cheap 2-gig or 1-gig thumb drives. We can probably logo them and put whatever on them and send them straight. Very simple, very small, no boxes, nothing. 
And uh, I like the idea, but right now, trying to get something cheap is really, really tough. Richard, you can ship the entire Tritech library on a one gig. The cheapest I can get out of a mass-produced out of China turns out to be about five bucks a crack. If I can get them down to about two bucks, it will be worth it. I'm hoping eventually we can cloud store almost all of Tritech, including older products, that kind of thing, but not quite yet. I think within the next couple of years, we'll be able to do it. Richard, do you have any more news of upcoming stuff that you're planning that you want to share with us? Except we're going to be at ANCON in Ohio, which is south of uh, uh, Cleveland, probably in uh, March, April, sometime in April. And that ought to be a wonderful convention. We've got a huge group of Fringeworthy fans out there that are. Uh, we're going to be running. We ran a chunk of four for them, and they really had a good time. And then we're going to run a little bit of five for them. And anybody who's there automatically plays. And you're talking about Portals 4 and Portals 5. Yes, and uh, possibly something else. I'm not sure what I'm going to do for them yet. But uh, it was a wonderful convention. It was, uh, I think the, the convention is run partially by Andy Hopp, who did Low Life. Yeah, he, I know of him through Dementia Radio because he helps at uh, Con on the Cob, which is becoming a Dementia Radio Con as well as a gaming convention. They were supposed to get us information on tables, and they didn't get it in time. So next year, one of the main ones we're going to be at are World Science Fiction and then the uh, ANCON. I don't think we're going to do Origins, and I don't know. I, I would love to come to Gen Con and just run some games. The, this year, two years after the first last time we did this, I'm in much, much better health. Can, I can run around and do a lot more than I have been for a very long time. So, Richard, for WorldCon in Detroit, you, is somebody going to build an ED-209? Uh, no, they're talking about a RoboCop statue in one of the bad neighborhoods, and probably it'll be cut down for scrap immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, Paul had a question here. Richard, have you considered maybe a OneNote-specific product for Fringeworthy, where you do all of the portals and all the backstory, maybe all the campaign seeds for just one whole node along the Fringe path? Maybe pick the most important... Uh, node within 10 or 25 of Earth Prime? Not yet. Do me a favor, make a really nice outline what you'd like to see and run it into us. That way I can glue it to the wall and stare at it long enough and then I'll do it. <laughs> How about I make it an outline, take it down to Kinkos, get it made poster size, and then ship it in a tube? <laughs> and it'll go on the wall. That's how Heinlein worked. He had a giant timeline written on his wall. A Heinlein timeline? Exactly. That's how Heinlein kept all his books straight. He wrote a timeline that wrapped all the way around his office. And I've run clotheslines all the way around the office with pages hanging from them. Yep, I understand. I know that he got uh, rolls of butcher paper in order to do the orbital calculations for some of the plots in his books because he had to be able to figure out you know, how ships would actually move in orbit, and they didn't have computers back then that he had access to. So they had to do it all with, as you put it, John, slipsticks. That is sci-fi on hard mode. Get out your pencil and paper and start doing the math. Yep, do the logarithm tables. If nobody has seen it yet, go see Gravity, which should have been entitled Angular Momentum. There was actually a meme about that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I think they, put, they they chose the right title, Richard. I don't think anybody but us would appreciate that. Oh, that's that movie where uh, Sandra Bullock has two choices. She can either take off her helmet and die now, or take off her, or wait till her oxygen runs out and die later. Yeah. Okay. And there's another one we caught that came out of France. And if you ever wanted to see an odd type of hardwired hinterland movie, see a movie called Upside Down. We had the science fiction club over to see it, and people were either totally enraptured and loved the movie, or they clapped their hand over their mouth and threw up. Well, that's a recommendation. It's a love story. Yeah. It's great. Has anybody seen it? I haven't seen it. It's about to come out on Netflix. All right. Well worth seeing. Absolutely worth seeing. Fantastic. Yeah, it's available on DVD on Netflix, but I was kind of waiting for it to go streaming. What, what is it? 
It's called Upside Down. It's uh, two worlds that are in juxtaposition. You literally look in this, up at the ceiling and you see another world upside down from you. And the people moving around in offices and things like that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Gravity is polarized depending on which world you're from. So you can actually stand almost between the worlds and look up and there's an office above you and it's from the same building. Yep, and I think remember from watching the previews, if you get on the other world, gravity's still the other the other direction. So you you basically you walk on the ceilings in the other on the other side. Pretty good. Okay, there's a lot of really good short, uh, science fiction shorts on YouTube also, and I was going through them recently, and some of them are very very good. Oh, absolutely, Bruce. I I, I watched a ton of them, and uh, some are awful, but. Uh, the just amazing what people are doing with short movies and uh, and you know quasi animation. Right. I would say the best science fiction movie I've seen, and it's old school hardcore science fiction, is the movie Moon. And it's funny too because there were issues I had with it, like technical issues, until it got to the end, and then I was like, oh, that's not an issue actually. After all, that could very easily be accommodated for. I think they got the science right in that. Yeah, it's it's a much smarter film than it looks when you first start watching it. Yeah, I'm still trying to get over uh, Gattaca. <laughs> Holy crap! Bye guys. Good night. Bye bye. Good night, Em. Richard, what are your thoughts on reviving some of Tritac Games' older products like Rogue Four Seventeen? Um, they never stopped selling. What? Well, how about a you know an update? That's what Melody's going to be redoing. We just got a new cover on it. Terry Williams actually did a very good cover for it. He had also submitted a second cover that was almost worth doing a sequel to it. Oh, God, please tell me yes. Something random about Duck Wars here. The cute thing is 417, it fits beautifully in with Cloisters. Yeah, I can see that. Oh, yeah. Just add nukes. Yeah, yeah. The new stuff is all basically systemless. It's all die 100 tables and die 10 tables, that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. none of it is actually a system. It, you can use it with whatever you want. Cool. Aren't you working on another new light system? Melody has been working on something. We first called it Tritactic and then something else. And then I think it got a third name. But it's absolutely, the reading through it, it's wonderful. Except she's gonna, she will eventually finish it. I'm staying away from systems right now. I want to get the scenarios, a lot of scenarios in the packages. I want to get the concepts out. And then, like I said, we can use that. We can use the old system. We can use anything you want. I, I like that approach, actually. So I had another question. Have, have you thought about publishing the alternate versions of Fringeworthy, such as a, a colonial and imperialistic Earth? No, actually, that's an interesting idea. Hold up, Fringeworthy 1889. <laughs> that's the Victorian Earth. Hey, let's get the first one done. Or Fringeworthy 1865. Fringeworthy 1492. Fringeworthy 1066. For the Victorian era, you don't need to do that. You've, you've got, the Vic, you got the Victorian world. Just make that a book. That could be a whole book. There you go, John. I'm just saying, why not a, you know, as John calls it, the dark fringe, where instead of a, a happy commonwealth where we're all going to be friendly neighbors and helpful? Oh, no, not more dark and hardcore, please. Everybody goes dark and hardcore. This version is when Hatsumi comes out and they go to McMurro Sound, instead of giving a flight back to civilization, they're arrested and put under guard, and then the American military shows up and takes over it. And it becomes a dark project. It becomes the dark fringe, run by the U U.S. military. But it doesn't have to be like like a different thing that can be in our world. You know, we're always looking for alternates. We're always looking for other primes. That's just another prime or another alternate. I have been crushing the forums talking about my play my email game. And I'm kind of, you know, talking to myself in there. I'm not hearing a lot back from folks and not too many people are adding stuff there. I haven't had a chance to go over read everything you've done, Jay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've, been, I've basically been up my neck with work as well. TLDR. Yep, yep. <laughs> One of the things that we're doing for the Steampunk book is the Bureau 13 Brass and Steam starts in 1889 and ends just after World War One. 
However, the first half of the book is more reality than it is steampunk. The second part of the book is going to be purely steampunk, almost like we make a corner turn about 1889-1890, and things go very differently. And the third part of the book is a huge block of scenarios, which is uh, cowboys and Indians and zombies. Yeehaw! I like it. So it's, it's interesting. Well, moving on, so let's get on to our questions for Richard that have been on our hot little hands. Richard, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck? I don't know. Talk to the one that got into the barn, that got into our corporate records, and that pulled them <laughs> underground for a nest. Is this a terrestrial woodchuck, or is this a heavy world? Oh, yeah, he, sh- he sure was. <laughs> what? I don't know that. Ah! Burrowed right into a pallet of boxes and emptied them out. We didn't even know it. Wow. <laughs> the small furry things have a way of disrespecting what we think is important. Man, why I was going to be busting on the slugs like that? They're not smalls, Peter. <laughs> the little ones are. Oh, we yeah, the babies? No, oh, nobody disses a baby slug. Baby slugs. Oh, that sounds so cute. I'm a little baby slug. Hi. That's, that's when you find out that, that a slug's tongue actually remains the same length throughout its life. The rest of the body just grows around it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard, we've been talking about giving away some of the secrets, and we, we have done a few on the show. Are you fine with us putting the ones that we've put out on the show into the book? Portals 4 and Portals 5, you're going to be getting the mother load. Okay, so we should have pretty much free reign to do to do that? No, no problem with that. You can talk about it. Okay. We definitely are, are going to explain a lot of things that are going on, why the Tremelorn picked Earth, and, uh, and what's going on with them. By Portals 5, a lot of it will make so much more sense. The ones I was speaking of, Rich, in particular, are the ones like uh, the Fringe Train. Yeah. Oh, the trains are going to be covered in four. Okay, well, we were talking about putting it in this edition of Fringeworthy. The Savage Worlds version, yeah. Yep, you can do that. Okay. Well, now the question is, Richard, uh, how much leeway do we have in redesigning, tr- turning it from a trap into an actual usable system to travel? It can be both. Write them up and basically send them to me. I'll go back over them and I'll make them as part of what you're going to see with Portals 4. In fact, you'll see Portals 4 probably before this is out. Will we see some uh, Kegak or Commonwealth-created artificial constructs like Meller and Queller or Termelon constructs? And Slarg or Termelon constructs? I'm a Termelon construct at this rate. Some more is going to be explained on that. I haven't done a lot with the Kegak, even though we know there's something a little more than they look like. And they're not as nice as they uh, can appear to be. Oh, really? Then again, we have more races showing up in Portals 4 than have shown up in the first book. What do you mean, Richard? Well, sweet innocent. Hey, wait a minute. Anyone who listens to this show would not get the imagery... Of the Kegak being nice people. Yes, they would. We need to have fire our publicist, that's what. We paint them with a definite dark brush. Kegak <laughs> are your blizzard-like goblins of the fringe path. Yeah, that's pretty much how we paint them. They're not quite what they appear, and they've got a lot of other motivations. What, besides getting rich? If I was them, I would be xenophobic to anything that isn't Saurian, and anything that hairless and walks on two legs. Xenophobic to anything bigger than us that eats meat. Well, they're not Saurians. They're lizard. That's what Richard's saying. They're lizard. Is that right, Richard? Are they Saurian or lizard? Because those are two different things. They're warm-blooded lizards. So they're Saurians. Didn't you say that they were uh, severely modified raptors of some kind? Dinonychus. God bless you. It was some kind of Greek warrior, wasn't it? A number of races will be explained have Tremelorn genetics, whether they're later on or whether they were actually designed that way. The Slargs definitely are almost mm-hmm. a subspecies of Tremelorn. We know that. The Tremelorn are so wonderfully sloppy with all their bioengineering. It's great because they just mess up everything. And you think, 
what in the world were you guys thinking? As slargs breed and so forth, there's always mutations. Is there a chance for a slarg to be, be born brave? Not that I've ever heard of. I thought you were going to go all slash fake with a slarg and Termeller, and I was about to turn off here. No, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's possible that, that there may be a mutation, and yeah, you get a slarg who, who's not a coward, but he's also not brave. You may have a, a slarg that's just average. The main problem with slargs is as a <laughs> subspecies of Tremelorin that were designed to be an anti-Meller weapon, they screwed up. The anti-Meller weapon doesn't want to fight. It wasn't that they screwed up, that the Kegak actually sabotaged them. That is a good possibility, too. Well, actually, Richard, that's in the D20 book. The, the Kegak messed with their programming and turned them into abject cowards. See, I was paying attention. <laughs> Okay, because I, I remembered the Kegak messing with the Meller. I didn't remember the Kegak with the Slargs. Nobody can prove that! You don't have any evidence! <laughs> so that leads me back to my question. Are the Kegak producing, you know, anti-Slarg, anti-Pangalisk, anti-human artificial constructs? Are they building bioengineered weapons tools? We don't have to. The fridges are full of them. Not that anybody has seen yet. Were they bombed so back so far back to Stonehenge that they really don't have the ability anymore, or are the survivors got better things to do with their time? Every other alt is a dinosaur world. We don't have to do anything. <laughs> uh, we're looking back. Part of Portals Four covers the Tremelin were ready to do something around 1599, and something went horribly wrong. And if you go back farther. You're going back down to, well, it's cute because if you walk into the uh, Toledo Museum, as you turn and look, there's a, the exact representation of a Tremelorin standing there. It's an Egyptian statue. It's, I've got a picture of it. It's ap- I, I saw it, and I just about fell over. Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. Toledo Museum. Okay, mental note. We go back even farther. They've now established, a, they've found a city in Turkey. That's close to 12,000 years old. It's really thrown everybody on their heads as to how we developed. The stone cutting yeah. and everything else is amazing. So we're, we're looking back at about ten to 20,000 years that the Chamorin have been active. You could strip mine crypto-archaeology for all kinds of fun stuff. Oh, you oh, can, yeah. but this, this city is absolutely beautiful. It's uh, what they did, how they yeah. did it, its own work, it just... It came out of nowhere, and suddenly they were building stuff that was on par with the Egyptians. Yeah, no, and that's not crypto-archaeology. They're actually digging that stuff up and finding it. Yep. Is that the Go Gobekli? Yep, that's it, Gobekli. That's the one the farmer found. He was busy, you know, plowing, and he hit, hit a stone, dug it up, and found all these animal carvings. They found five circular buildings, big ones, probably close to uh, a mile, a basic circle. And they found another city now. Sweet. I love it. I love it when modern science gets thrown on its head. I love it when people run around going, we have no idea what's going on. Like dark matter. That's pretty cool. You know what, Jay, though? This is one thing I, I take issue with some people. And I'm not saying you're doing this, but a lot of people will criticize science because they'll say, oh, well, science, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. It's like, but good scientists, real scientists are just like you and love that. They're like, hey, we got something to do. Some people are looking for more certainty than they are knowledge. But when somebody picks up something and says, I have no idea why this is doing there, that means a door is opened up to learning even more. And that's what's really fun about it. And real scientists love that. A scientist, a scientist doesn't like to hear, ah, we solved that problem. They like to hear, ooh, that's interesting. Or we understand everything but this. Mm-hmm. I think isn't Bob Ballard busy? Isn't he? I think he's the one that's actually investigating the, the the Black Sea, looking for remains of. Well, didn't they debunk that thing? John, I was on, on this last night. The uh, Black Sea. There's found two buildings. One is roughly 300 feet across. The other one is even bigger. They're circular. They're definitely look like they were made out of stone or concrete. It's cute because they look like the Millennium Falcon. There's a book called Noah's Flood, which has nothing to do with Noah. It has to do with the flooding of that region, the the Black Sea. Does it tell us how long is a cubit? Right. 
tip of your finger to your nose. Let's see, a cubit. Cubit, I used to know what a cubit was. <laughs> is, is, isn't that book Noah's Flood about how the Black Sea didn't used to be a Black Sea? and That's correct. Then it flooded and became the Black Sea and everybody had to run away? No, no, John, it was a valley. I thought there was a pond, or there was a smaller lake, and then oh, well, there might have been, yeah, yeah, there might have been, but it was it would have been much smaller if there was a freshwater lake underneath it. I know that the thing still is really, really strong in virgin layers and is really pancaked, and some of the layers are oxygen deprived. Yes, so there's all kinds of things going on in the Black Sea that are uh... they're very interested in this because they can go down with probes and they could find structures that even had even were made of wood. Because they've been oxygen deprived ever since you know the, the the fall of the of the last ice age, you'd have wooden stuff that's still you know you might have you might find boats and stuff down there from that era that are still intact because they haven't been eaten up by bacteria. Talking of, of the ice age, there's speculation that there's a whole bunch of settlements in what's now the English Channel because that was all land during the last ice age. Dude, I, I totally believe that. The, the the water levels are 300 feet lower. So I'm willing to bet that there is a lot of history because almost every society lived right next to water. water. But if you, you know, if you have every society living right next to water and then the water rises 300 feet, how much information, how, much, how many societies were lost? Well, what early cities were flooded that we don't know about? Right, right, exactly. We know definitely there was a... a- Atlantic spanning uh, group of people called, they call them the red paint people. They were sailing between the continents about 7,000 years ago. Rich picks or it didn't happen. Yeah. Pardon? <laughs> Pictures or it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> God. Well, in this case, archaeological evidence and it didn't happen. Yeah. That's a more real point there. And that uh, well, the thing on the, the Baltic flooding. Was mm-hmm. uh, they think there was a land, there definitely was a land bridge that was blocking the entire men. And that basically it finally wore down, and that was the end of it. The yep. entire med flooded. But that happened about 30, 30 million years ago when the, when the when the med flooded. Was it that far, John? Yeah, yeah, it was. No, that's the Mediterranean, not the Black Sea. The Black Sea happened within human history. So, uh, how fast do you have to be traveling when you hit the warp to actually become fringeworthy if you're not fringeworthy? About 160 miles an hour. I thought it was more like 300. No, no, a lot less. Only 160? 160, 170. So anybody can become fringeworthy as long as they're driving a high-end sports car. Or thrown from a catapult. They might need a little more protection than that, considering the ramps and everything. Yeah. It's very hard to get a car down if you hit a ramp and you're flying. That was a question I had. If you're in a fast-moving vehicle and it plows into a warp, does the uh, membrane actually slow you down to its normal transition speed, or does it just spit you onto the platform however fast you were going? It, it spits you onto the platform. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Jay, you do realize that one-sixteenth of an inch per second is a really slow rate? Nobody goes through that slow. I mean, walking speed is immensely faster than that. Okay, so it, it's a lower limit. But it's not an upper limit. You're not constrained to that speed. If you're fringeworthy, you can fire weapons through fringe portals. However, the fringe portal as a computer system will not let you fire the weapons through the portal. It stops them. Never did before. Yeah, Richard, you told me about cases where the adventurers came onto a platform and saw people firing cannons through the portals. You've told me that in the past. Right, they fired them into the portals, but on the other side, all they saw was flashes of light. Well, that changes everything. Oh. <laughs> hey, Bruce, there goes your middle campaign right out the window. That uh, means a big rewrite of pirate t- tactics now. I think we should have a discussion with Richard about this. <laughs> hey, Richard, we, we have something more fun in mind. Any yeah. in, any intelligent race would not design a portal system that you could shoot through. Why not? It's just mass moving at a at a very fast rate. So that that would imply that there is in fact an upper speed limit. That if you fired a bullet and it's kept its fringeworthy quality from being in contact with you, that it would touch the gate and be slowed down and go clackety clack on the other side. Or it's just vaporized. Yeah, according to Richard, it's just coming through as a flash of light. 
So how does the fringe portal know if it's a bullet or a care package? Or a supersonic jet. Indeed. I always thought that at transition speed, when you had a computer that smart, it had all the time it needed in the millionths of a second to completely scan something and look at it at the subatomic level and make a decision. I say it again, this thing has to be sentient. It's making very complex judgments about the intent of what somebody's doing when something goes through that membrane. Hey, hey, you know what, Jay? We've always said that, too. We totally agree. It, no, it's not sentient. It's just very smart. There's a difference. Sentience means self-aware. Sentient means it has its own agenda. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. It's it's very it, it smart. It does have an agenda. Not its own, though. You'll find out more in Portal 4. <laughs> uh, but it, it does beg the question then, Richard. So if it is speed, then and one of the problem portals is a portal up in the air, flying around, that if you're in a supersonic jet and you fly through the portal at Mach 2, do you come out as confetti on the other side then? Into the engineering tunnels? No. Somewhere else? Probably. Remember the ships they found around the areas? Things that shouldn't have been where they were? Yeah, and then, and of course, there's the pokey walls, which are busy sucking up things from other places, too, so... This thing, it makes really complex judgments. This is what happened in 1599. This thing makes, uh, makes complex judgments about the intent of people when they do things with things. This is, like, way beyond any kind of physics measurement of what is a thing and what's a thing connected to another thing. But it's playing with space and time, Jay. So transitioning a portal may seem instantaneous for you or I, but for the machine, it may last a million years. Yep, yep. Its experience of reality is going to be completely different from anything you and I are seeing. Oh, that's another question, Richard. And the the black portals, those are just... Security, right? I mean, typically you should be able to see right through the portal and see where you're going. Am I correct? Most of the portals were black and were, were basically set to black. But you can turn setting though, and if you know how and you have the right engineering tools, you can actually open it up and see through it. Okay, so you saw a red door and then you wanted it painted black. John, didn't you have another question that I stopped you from asking? Oh, oh yeah! It actually, this is actually not fringeworthy. Uh, so it's gonna be—it's a, a totally another game which we haven't even. You know, it's weird zone. It's one of those questions I'll probably get Richard, you know, scratching his head at this point because uh, it came up in some discussions in the forum. What about weird zone? Okay, I'm on my zero plot. We're flying through the mauve in the weird space, and I dig a trench right through my zero plot. Making sure I keep connections between the two of them with, like, girders or whatever, and then I shove it out further. What happens when we drop on a world? Nobody has ever thought of that before. I have. <laughs> yes. So you're going to jack them apart. Try to make a bigger zero plot. I'm thinking very hard that gravitation might well simply pull them back together, much like planetary uh, breaking planets. So I would end up making a smaller zero plot in the process, then, is what you're saying. You could try to put a framework in between and expand it, but then again, you'd have the same zero plot traveling with a frame in it. Okay, if I make a divot in the side, say I dig a trench in the side. And it would be a little bit larger. Okay, but if I make a divot in the side, not go all the way through, but I make a divot in the side, does it get filled, or does it stay open when it pops in the other world? I think it would stay open. So basically, it won't get filled with whatever, whatever there. But if I then grab some dirt and fill it while we're waiting, does that dirt come along with us? Fill it enough, yes. The thing is, you probably can make it bigger, but it takes a lot more work than I thought it probably would. A lot of work. So you can bring dump truck loads of dirt along. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking that at some point in line, you might, run, you might spot a zero plot that's square. Someone worked really hard to make their zero plot square, and it's about a half acre in size. Could you make one top-heavy? If you kept building straight up, would you make it top-heavy and it tipped over? It'd get cut off. It would get cut off. There's actually a limit. There's the, 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 this bubble, space-time bubble around, the, around, around it. If you go above that, it gets sliced off when you, come, when you come through. That leads to another hilarious thought, that your apartment building gets chopped off at the eighth floor, and when it vanishes, ninth floor through whatever falls to the ground. Yep. That's why it's kind of horrifying. 
not terribly hilarious to the people in the building. Well, that that's that brings you to your question then, because uh, way it's written in in the opening paragraphs, when the, when the first zero plots leave uh, leave Earth, the divots are replaced with something. Where's where's that something coming from? A different world. Is it the world they're going to, or is it uh, someplace else? It's actually a shift. So you're shifting. You're shifting mass. So it is coming from the world they're going to then. It's it's not what you're going to, it's what's behind you. Nope, John, everybody took a jump to the left. Okay, so so basically it's playing catch-up, so it does replace divots. But the divots are coming from behind. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but there's no behind. You're, you're the first one leaving. Nope, somebody else followed you, John. Everybody took a step to the left. So you say it's another zero plot that's, that's appearing there? I think so. That's not what it says. It's a placeholder. It says they're empty. It says they're just like bits of woodland. We're going to explain some of that in Portal 5, too. Don't think they're not related. (laughs) Okay. Is that somebody's weapon trying to get around the fringeworthy filter? No, it's something else. It's it's something else. You missed that episode, Paul. (laughs) Because it sounds very much like somebody's effort to get around the portal... It has to do with the portal system, that's for sure. But uh, let's not go into that right here. I missed that episode, too. Something seriously to do with the 1599 problem. What is the 1599 problem? That's when the Tamellern did something really bad on Earth. Nope, actually, it didn't happen on Earth. It happened off of Earth. Okay. The Tamellern did something really, really bad, like violent destructo bad. Something went terribly wrong and on a Tremellern in a homeworld that was very close to Earth that is actually nobody's noticed yet. Okay. I had thought they, they, they cut themselves off from the fringe path system because of the Meller War. I thought they just said, screw this and left. That's part of the problem. There were still control nodes and there was a huge one near Earth. A control node. What is a control node? A control node is what the path controls the pathways, programs the pathways. It's the core of the AI. What does it look like? Uh, probably about a mile of building in the middle of a Tremelorn city. In the middle of a what city? Tremelorn city. Okay. Yeah, it looks like a forest. Looks. It looks more like Dubai. So the Tremellern had control nodes every so often along the fringe path system, maintaining it and keeping it intact. Is that right? Right. Okay, so what happens if one of those got damaged so badly that it couldn't maintain that section of the fringe paths? Would the fringe paths just end there, or would they bridge over and connect to the next functioning node? They would probably correct themselves. Okay. Put themselves back together, a basic backup. So it's got backup capability. now. It's been established the Meller are actually the Meller actually corrupted the big system and used it as a weapon. So the big system was destroyed. Okay, and I'm not clear I'm not clear on who did that. Yeah, Jay, they didn't corrupt the big system, they just used it. Okay, they had access and they used it as a weapon, and so the big system was shut down so that it couldn't be used as a weapon anymore. The Termellan turned off the big system to prevent it being used as a weapon. Right. Okay, this is a critical statement. Or somebody else turned off the big system to block the Tremellern in. Basically, their house was full of rats. I mean, if you think about it, the, the big system was sort of like the, uh, the, the Krell uh, machine, which could do, deliver anything you need any place else. Yeah, that part I remember. Five kilograms of antimatter. Wait a minute. Richard just said something very important. I know. Yes. So maybe the Tremellerns and the Meller are going at it. And there was a third party who said, you know what? Enough of this. I'm shutting it down. It's the sixth foundation. We all know that. Got something else for you. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game. Hate the players. This is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. 
This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. This is Eric. It's all about having fun with friends. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.